2: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. There is no orthodoxy that could not have been construed as blasphemous when it started. Christianity was accused by Jews of being idolatrous, proclaiming Jesus as divine. Muhammad was criticised by his polytheistic Arab contemporaries for preaching monotheism, and I suspect among the names Pharaoh hurled at Moses, the former Egyptian prince, blasphemer would have been one that came to his mind. Jesus himself had some rather gnomic things to say about blasphemy. Here's Gemma Simmons speaking on the Naked Reflection show, Forgiving. Jesus said rather obscurely um, that, you know, everything can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And a huge amount of ink, uh, Christian ink, certainly has been spent down the centuries trying to work out what is that exactly? I suspect
1: that what Jesus was talking about was the total denial of the presence of God or the total denial of the effectiveness of God in people's lives.
2: I'm not going to try and unpick what Jesus meant by that in this podcast, but blasphemy is our subject this week. Only one film has ever been banned in the UK for blasphemy, and that was called Visions of Ecstasy in 1989. Yet, nearly 20 years later, it was allowed to be released. In case you're interested, it consisted of a figure representing St. Teresa of Avila who, quote, interacts sexually with a figure representing the crucified Christ. You get the picture. It's a big subject, and the film Lady of Heaven was recently released, and one amongst many films that caused great controversy and was accused of being blasphemous. The film opens with an Iraqi boy losing his mother in an Iraq being torn apart by the violent extremist group ISIS, who, as you probably know, adhere to the Sunni branch of Islam. The orphan is taken in by an elderly woman who tells him the story of Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad from the Shia perspective, explaining how she was the first victim of terrorism. With a plot like that, it wasn't surprising that controversy arose, and when the film was released, word got around and vigorous, but largely peaceful protests started to build in some English towns, As a consequence, Cineworld decided to withdraw it, citing concerns for the safety of their customers. But other cinema chains did not follow suit. Puzzlingly, at least to me, the Iranian government banned the release of Lady of Heaven altogether, although Iran is a sheer majority country. There's much to unpack here. Joining me to discuss blasphemy on the big screen is Dr. Emmanuel Daly-Esposti from the Department of Islamic Studies at the University of Cambridge. Emmanuel is an expert on Shia Islam and the editor of Arab Review. And welcome back to Mohamed Ahmed, a PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute who's joining me in the studio. Emmanuel, in your estimation, what was at the root of the controversy about this film?
3: Thank you, Ed. So, There are really two issues with the Lady of Heaven film. One of which applies across the board in Islam, which is the prohibition against the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad and companions of the Prophet Muhammad. And the other is the controversy surrounding the specific interpretation of early Islamic history that the film purported to tell. So the film uses CGI and various different technological methods to show the Prophet's face, which was one of the reasons why it attracted so much controversy across the board, both Sunnis and Shia. So Shiism does have examples of depictions of religious figures in a way that Sunnism does not, but that doesn't mean that it is permissible in Shia Islam. Shia Islam and Sunni Islam have a consensus regarding the prohibition against the depiction of the Prophet and his companions.
2: I can see that there's a general agreement that depiction of, uh, of Muhammad is an issue across all denominations of Islam. And as you say, Emanuela, there have been figures in Korans and in texts from Shia Islam, and perhaps also in, in other forms, I don't know. But Muhammad, does the reception and the controversy reflect long-standing differing interpretations of Islamic history? Because that's your area, isn't it, between Sunni and Shia?
4: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I I would agree with what Manuel was saying. There are differences of opinion regarding depiction of pious individuals and prophets, and and companions. Uh, And perhaps CGI was a way that this film skirted around it. But like you say, the real controversy is the effect of this film, and what it actually means. And and you mentioned Iran, and maybe it's puzzling that Iran banned the film. But not just Iran, Pakistan, and many other Muslim countries with very, very sizable Shia populations. Both Shia and Sunni scholars came out against the film. So why is this? And it goes back to discussions that were happening between the very high Shia scholars and Al-Azhar University in the 70s and the 80s, whereby uh, everybody agreed that denigrating pious individuals who the Sunnis hold dear is something that's not conducive to any sort of Islamic unity. It's not conducive to positive uh, engagement. And it's not necessary within Shi'i Islam to actively denigrate. Agreement and consensus was if somebody doesn't particularly like certain individuals, okay, you, you can say that, but don't, you know, publicly denigrate
2: so, the issue is about the denigration rather than the depiction of the figures. Is that your view?
4: A few years ago, there was a very popular series called the Omar series, which NBC, the uh, Arab network, released, which was hugely popular across the Islamic world, especially among Sunnis, which tracked the life of Omar before Islam, during Islam, after Islam, and during his caliphate. Uh, of course, he succeeded the caliphate after Abu Bakr, who succeeded from the prophet. So he he sort of has a long life and it traces his political, religious life and companions are depicted. But the prophet's not depicted in that, you know, for, for obvious reasons. It's a point of contention and um, something that's never really been done before, especially in a film piece.
3: Just to unpack a little bit, this idea that the, the film represents a Shia interpretation I would push back on that a little bit because just to contextualise what this film is and who is behind it. So the film was actually produced by a collective, which was put together or organised by Yasser Habib, who is a very controversial figure. He's actually a Kuwaiti national who was extradited from Kuwait on grounds of inciting sectarianism. One of the reasons he gained notoriety is because he has various sermons that specifically preach against Abu Bakr, Omar and Aisha, being three figures in early Islam who were venerated by Sunnis. So he's gained a lot of very bad press regarding his specific views of these early Islamic figures. So the film really depicts a very specific interpretation of early Islamic history from a politicised Shia perspective, not a mainstream Shia perspective. And this is why it's been banned by Iran. This is why uh, many Shia scholars came out against it, because it actually has a very, very political narrative that doesn't necessarily represent the views of most Shia Muslims around the world.
2: And I suppose the, the deliberately provocative nature of the film, and I think we can all agree that it was deliberately provocative, adds from the marketing and the sort of cynical economic point of view (laughs) generates interest and probably generates viewers or at least that's part of what the the goal was i suspect i know with another controversial film a few years ago called passion of the christ which was a a brutal depiction of the end of jesus's life there was some discussion about whether that film should be banned and actually generated huge revenue for the um, production company and and mel gibson and, and his organization you know, it's difficult to know how to deal with these things. I suppose the response here is to close it down. And I can understand that in the context of some, with the majority of countries. I'm intrigued by how we've handled it here in the UK and in the West. You see the response of Cineworld, which is all bit too, bit too controversial, we won't show it, and, and others who have shown it. I mean, what advice would you give to those companies, those uh, cinema chains in the West when it comes to these things?
4: In all honesty, it's not their responsibility to vet this sort of thing. This sort of thing is really an internal discussion. And like you were saying about The Passion of Christ, it's a controversial film, but yet the way that the film was made, you know, the Pope was involved in the production of it. It was Many Christian groups were consulted. In this case, it's not been the case. Um, and, and they haven't consulted, for example, Sunni, mainstream Sunni scholars or voices and incorporated them within the film. And that's the difference here.
2: I get that, but at the same time, Are you suggesting, and I'm taking it to an extreme, Mohammed, are you suggesting that every film that has a depiction connected with the religion of Islam needs to consult the great and mighty and get the the imprimatur, to use a Catholic term, before it's produced?
4: It would make it easier. It would make the responses slightly less chaotic. I think that would always be the case, especially about this particular period of Islam. This is a controversial period of Islam, not only because of the contested Sunni and Shi'i depictions of what happened, but also because many of these sources are written later. And because they're written later, both Sunni and Shi'i uh, narratives really appropriate according to what is needed by their group. So Sunnis, for example, are what I call hyper conciliatory and they represent that era as companions getting on with each other to the nth degree. Whereas Shias present it as in a sort of hyper confrontational way, because that's what gives that's what gives the Shia sect its value in, in that, you know, this was an era of confrontation. I mean the truth is probably somewhere in between. But you know, these groups actually derive their value from those views.
3: I think the reason why there were protests in Britain or in the UK is because Muslim groups here already feel under pressure. They feel scrutinised. They feel surveilled by the state. And so any depiction that they feel does not resonate with their version of Islam or how they feel about their religion, it's already a hot a sensitive topic. And I think that's possibly why we saw such widespread protests here. And also, potentially, there was a little bit of, dare I say, Islamophobia in Sinewar's response, saying that, you know, all these peaceful protests, we feel unsafe, you know, our, our staff is unsafe because there are Muslims protesting, when the the protests themselves were entirely peaceful. But it also does bring up memories of the Salman Rushdie affair, and of course, the Danish cartoons. And there is this, slightly checkered and problematic history of speaking about islam in a western context my advice would be i suppose that anybody who wishes to speak about islam needs to do so from a perspective of understanding and of research it's not the same as speaking about christianity in a western context let's just say that
4: but also i think what adds credence to this is film The Message, which was released in the 70s, which depicts the companions in a very respectful light. It doesn't portray the Prophet Muhammad. And that's one you know, example of when it really can be done from a place of understanding, even even in a Western context or in a mixed Western and Middle Eastern context. And secondly, about it not being the same as Christianity, Christianity develops an art form, a physical art form of Jesus and of pious individuals. Islam doesn't. Islam is very iconoclastic. And in doing that, by presenting you know, these individuals or even you know, a prophet, not that he's divine in any way, shape or form, but the, the links that that could have to idolatry and all of these different very, very hot topics within Islam, it's not the same as Christianity. This is an art form that is alien to Islam in, in a lot of ways. So if Islam is going to incorporate it, it's going to take a bit longer.
3: This film was intended to be controversial Despite what the producers may claim, I don't believe they were trying to just present their version of Islam.
2: I gather the producer was on Newsnight, Emmanuel, and offered a controversial view?
3: So Malik Stublak, one of the film's producers, was on Newsnight um, and he was debating with one of the leaders of Five Pillars, who were part of the protest movement. And he actually said, and this is a direct quote, that they, meaning Abu Bakr and Omar, were barbaric ISIS-like figures. Now, that is a very controversial and very extreme view, even within Shi'ism. And even Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who's the highest ranking scholar in Shi'ism, has specifically issued fatwas against denigrating any of the companions of the Prophet. And most Shia Muslims would still hold these people in esteem, even if they might disagree with some of their actions. So for him to actually go on BBC and say this is extremely controversial and is really trying to incite some kind of response from the Sunni community.
4: If I could just add, I think that's very true. Um, and I think it's factually incorrect, really, to represent Sunniism and Sunni figures as the only groups who, who, who have engaged in terrorism. Um, so it's factually incorrect for what the film is doing by equating Sunniism and Sunni figures to modern terrorism. Going a little bit into the history, because it's very important in this context is we have a concept called khawarij. Now, these are a group of people who, after the Prophet's death, are causing a lot of problems within the Muslim community and inciting violence. Now, the the Sunni sources represent the khawarij as a group of people who are responsible for most of the bloodshed. So there's almost a third party. Whereas what this film is doing is it's completely changing the narrative and applying this concept of khawarij to Sunnis. And even ISIS are considered khawarij. They're considered extreme... Out of Sunniism out of Islam by Sunnis today, so what this film is doing is it 's being ultra provocative and it could it could incite some serious problems amongst people today
2: I want to tease out this question of what's appropriate in a Western context, I I feel slightly uncomfortable with the argument that Christianity is the majority, and therefore, it's okay, sort of to to have a punch at Christianity, I'm putting it in my words now, I'm being deliberately provocative. because I know many of my Christian friends and colleagues feel sometimes very defensive about the place of Christianity in Britain. um, And that it's okay to criticize Christianity, but hey, it's not okay to criticize Judaism or Islam and so on. So I think we've got to be a bit a bit sensitive to that. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Mohamed Ahmed and Emmanuel Deli Esposti. We're discussing blasphemy on the big screen. State-of-the-art visual techniques were used in making the Lady of Heaven, but a less controversial use of advanced technology had already been used in a religious context. Here's DJ Soto, lead pastor of the Virtual Reality Church, speaking on the Naked Scientist show, The VR Church.
0: We have multiple church experiences on Sunday and, and several Bible studies throughout the week, all in, all in virtual reality. What I love about virtual reality church is the, the people that come that would not have been able to experience church. And there is just a, a surprisingly a, a large amount of people. So, for example, people who are homebound for a, a condition or a disease. Um, some, you know, it might not be a physical ailment or a sickness. It might be like emotional or mental. They have severe social anxiety. And just the idea of walking into a church and a building and sitting down, that's a, a very intimidating prospect for them.
2: I'd like to pick up on this question of the CGI and the state of visual art techniques which were used in Lady of Heaven to create images. And as you said, Muhammad, this may have been a, an attempt to get around the, the controversy or pretend to get around the controversy. But... I'm intrigued to think about and discuss to what extent technology can be used to diffuse some of these issues that are being raised.
4: What immediately comes to mind is the fact that what the CGI has produced in this case is a very lifelike representation. And that unfortunately comes with so much baggage within Islam. I've said on the podcast before the story of Satan and the idols, there's a group of individuals, and this is repeated throughout uh, Sunni uh, hadiths, that there's a group of individuals who are praying to the one true Abrahamic God and a pious person dies from within their community and they make a picture of this person and they say we're going to keep this picture of this person because it reminds us of the almighty and then eventually they decide that you know on the way to their place of prayer they're going to stop by this picture and again they say now we're going to start praying here eventually it leads to the creation of an idol and another deity and this is precisely what islam is seeking to avoid at all costs and in my opinion doesn't really matter whether it's cgi whether it's you know, a hand drawing, whether it's a photograph, whether it's a historical recreation of what these individuals may have looked like, none of them are going to be acceptable in in, in mainstream Islamic circles.
3: I'm actually inclined to agree with that, because within Islam, the prohibition is against depicting the Prophet and his companions. So it doesn't matter how you depict them. If you have an image of a face, then that is a depiction. I can see why the Film producers chose to use CGI. But if I may say something slightly controversial here, I believe this film was made for a Western audience, not for a Muslim audience.
2: What about Western Muslims?
3: I think the film was trying to really place itself within a tradition of, as you say, sort of controversial films on the big screen, but they are aiming their critique or their narrative at a non-Muslim audience, because the Muslim audience know that this would be problematic.
4: And in many ways, the Muslim audience already know which side of the debate they fall on, right? Um, Whereas there's something to be gained in swaying a sort of Western audience as to to the origins of Islam.
3: Yes. And I also think, to go back to your points about cynicism, Ed, in terms of the sort of cynical use of controversy to boost sales... I think there's also an element in which they cynically used the idea of free speech as a vehicle to put out a very controversial message.
2: And that is a tricky one, isn't it, Emmanuel, that knotty question of freedom of speech and hatred, if you like. And that's something that we're constantly grappling with, not just in terms of questions of Islamophobia, but in in terms of so many different issues. I would like to tease out a slightly different, connected aspect, which is the tension between blasphemy, because that is the focus of uh, our podcast this week, and freedom of religion and belief, which has become quite a big issue in negotiations at high levels between, particularly between Muslim-majority countries and non-Muslim-majority countries. You know, what is blasphemous? What is freedom of speech? And I haven't come across a useful way into that. Do you have any thoughts, Mohammed?
4: Well, what springs to mind is that this this is an ancient disagreement, actually, within Islam itself, and, and you know the, the concept of blasphemy and and what to do in in that situation. And there's two main views. There's a mainstream view of you know apostasy and blasphemy, you know, being equated, um, and the second is that of an individual called Ata, who is a Medinan or Meccan Islamic Quranic commentator, uh, and he uses the verse "La ikraha fiddin." There is no compulsion in religion. So when it comes to apostasy, blasphemy, uh, any of these sorts of issues. His view was that the individual has the right and nobody should tell them otherwise, and it's between them and God.
3: As you say, this is something that we are grappling with worldwide and have been for many years, many many centuries. It's particularly acute at the moment in contemporary society, given how diverse our societies are becoming.
2: I wonder whether it's, it's less about diversity and more about the fact of um, this sense of polarization that we feel and often the sort of sense of feeling misunderstood and not heard. And therefore these terms, freedom of religion or belief, And blasphemy become almost standard bearers, you know, for what we represent. I fly the flag for freedom and I fly the flag for, you know, anti-blasphemy. And it's not very helpful. It's not very nuanced, really, which goes against exactly what we at the Wolf Institute are trying to achieve. Let's move on to the question of the state of the film industry in the Arab world uh, and in Iran. I, I'm intrigued uh, to understand a little bit more about it, because if you can't depict any of these figures, do they end up being Bollywood type films or what? I, give me a famous Iranian film, Emmanuel.
3: Persepolis. Oh, of course, yes. Iranian cinema has a very strong tradition, not necessarily in terms of depicting Islam, but in terms of softly critiquing the government or delving into life. To Kona a phrase behind the veil um, in Iran and sort of gender relations and actually the Iranian cinema is relatively progressive given what you might assume about Islamic Republic. But I would be surprised if anything like this were to come out in Iran because of the prohibition against certain depictions and interpretations.
2: So we really don't have a sort of Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments and Moses on the top of Mount Sinai doing his thing. There isn't that tradition at all in Islam, is there?
4: Not really. But the closest thing that I can link it to is the message. I've I've, I've repeated it several times in in, in the podcast, 1970s. Definitely watch it. it's It's a classic.
2: So where does that leave us as we draw this podcast to a close in terms of handling these controversial topics when it comes to visual representation? Are we simply going to be encouraged to um, not touch them at all, not to have these depictions? And it feels, to put a different slant on it, slightly puritanical. I feel a bit uncomfortable saying, no, we won't touch it. You know what I mean?
4: I think physical representations in general just don't sit well with the Islamic tradition. This is a tradition that that even on their own coins just had La Ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah in script. You know, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is a messenger of God. No images, nothing. Almost an entire history of Islam, they have very few cases of of images on coins. This is a tradition that developed geometry, developed calligraphy in response to this void of what iconoclasm brings to it. So it's so deeply ingrained that I think it's not really going to go anywhere anytime soon.
2: Let me be provocative. Shouldn't we just say, if you don't want to watch the film, don't watch the film?
4: Well, to be honest, I'd never heard of the film until the controversy. So actually, what these protesters and all, you know, all the response actually made a name for the film more than you know the film being released itself. So I think you're right. My philosophy is live and let live. But of course, everybody has the right to protest. If everyone has the right to lobby, then Muslims should also have the right to lobby and protest against what they think is an unflattering film or a film that could incite violence or hatred.
3: As you say, Ed, if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. I think... It's important to have different narratives. And while this specific interpretation may not represent the mainstream of either Sunnism or Shiism, it is an opinion and a view held by a minority of individuals. That doesn't mean that it can't be represented. But I think what's really important and what was missing from the response, especially the Western media response, was an understanding of what this narrative is, where it's coming from, who's behind it. Why is it problematic? Rather than just take the free speech argument for granted. That's not to say we shouldn't have free speech. We should have debates about these things, but we also need to contextualise them. We need to understand what these different narratives are and who is behind them and before we can actually have a conversation.
2: I think this conversation between you two has helped our understanding. And all I can say is that's all for now, folks, as they say in the movies. Thanks to my guests, Mohamed Ahmed and Emmanuel Deli Esposti, and thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which includes a fascinating discussion about Islamophobia. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests.